Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 255. There's real power in stepping back and saying, what is this really about? And in that moment, you and your opponents are almost on the same team because it's in both of your interests to be able to figure out what we're disagreeing about. And the flip side of that, of saying, what is it that we're disagreeing about is what are we not disagreeing about? That's the voice of Bo So. He's the two-time world debate champion, but he wasn't always great at debate. In fact, a little before his ninth birthday, Bo lost his ability to disagree. It was 2003, and to expand the range of their opportunities and his, his parents decided to move from South Korea to Australia, to Warunga, that's a suburb of Sydney, where Bo would find himself in cultural and social isolation. He spent weeks in the back of a rental car as his parents did all the things new immigrants must do. Registrations, filings, leases, buying a couch. But soon it was time for his first day of school, third grade. And on that first day, his first teacher in his first class wrote his name and his home country on the blackboard and introduced him to a room of kids unsure what to make of him. And with that, he entered the world of arguing not quite debate, and he wasn't very good at it because, as I mentioned earlier, he could not yet disagree. When I moved to Australia and, and I moved to cross language lines, I learned that the hardest part of doing something like that is adjusting to real life conversation, and that the hardest conversations to adjust to were disagreements because that was when people started to interrupt and the rhythms of speech tend to break down. People actually don't make as much sense as they think they do <laughs> often in a disagreement. And uh, that and a sense that drawing attention to my differences, the way in, in which I was in conflict with my surroundings, the sense that that could mark me out as an outsider contributed to this decision that I made, which was that I would be very agreeable. Very agreeable. 
See, the students, according to Bo, whenever there was a moment away from the teachers and the other adults, they urged him to renounce South Korea and Eastern culture. Weird stuff, like suggesting that he should agree with them, that white bread is better than rice, for example. And they also teased him a lot. They made fun of his accent, they made fun of his language, they ridiculed him in sports and other group activities. And through all this, he still tried to remain agreeable, to not cause a fuss, to not argue. And he says that's mainly because he didn't have a good enough grasp of the dynamics of the way English speakers in this particular culture exchanged arguments, the way they retorted one another. It made him feel lost, isolated, frustrated when he tried to reply in the way he wanted to reply, but couldn't. He says this went on for about two years, but then in March of 2005, a fifth grade teacher introduced him to something that would change everything for the rest of his life. Her name was Miss Wright. And one day, she asked the school for volunteers for a new extracurricular activity, debate club. And Bo recalls almost everyone declined. But on one day, when Miss Wright was stopping people on their way out of class, she asked him directly, and not wanting to be disagreeable, not wanting to start an argument, he said, sure, I'll sign up for it. But it wasn't long before he realized he loved it. And that's the great irony of his origin story. Not wanting to be disagreeable, not wanting to disagree right then at that moment, he signed up for a course that taught him how to disagree. The thing that broke me out of that was a promise that my year five teacher made me, which was that in debating when one person speaks, no one else does. And that was the first thing, the promise that I would be given a chance, that I would be heard. That broke me out of that. But from there, I learned a set of tools about how to put together an argument, how to respond, how to use gesture, speech, words to convey your meaning. And all of those things I experienced as agency giving. So yeah, Boso loved it. He loved the idea of it, that he would learn how to voice his side of things. And after a year of practicing formal debate, it extinguished the frustration, gave him the tools to stand his ground, but also to know when to stop and listen and learn from his fellow classmates without resorting to bickering, without resorting to dead-end arguing. And now... Nearly 20 years later, after a lifetime of perfecting the art, craft, and practice of formal debate, he wants to pass all of that on to the rest of us. And I do mean the rest of us, all the way up to the politicians who run things, who seem unable to disagree. In the same way that Bo So was unable to disagree, in the way that Bo So says is essential, to a healthy democracy. In this climate of polarization, where disagreements tend to become toxic very quickly, I think we're all going through that, that moment in our day-to-day of conflict aversion. 
and I had that when I was um, eight years old, where disagreements can they can feel unwieldy and uncontrollable, and they very quickly put us to the sidelines and to the margins. Each of those tools made me feel like I could get a grip. I could make something of this, and and those things made me come back into disagreement. And I do think that encountering people with whom you disagree and and sometimes changing your mind at other times having your existing views textured through that exchange that feels like an important part of growth Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Bo So. Who is this person? Who is this person telling us all these things about how debate works and how valuable it is? Just one of the greatest argumentative masters alive. Seriously, this is a man who is so phenomenal at debate that he is a two-time world champion and has served both as the coach of Harvard's debate team and Australia's. Yes, the country of Australia. He coached them on how to masterfully produce and evaluate arguments. And Bo's grand argument is that we should disagree more, but disagree well. He put this grand thesis into a book called Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us How to Listen and Be Heard. And in that book, he goes through his personal journey, moving from South Korea to Australia, learning how to debate after struggling in school with arguing, and he tells the story of how he became a world champion. And by the end, he not only teaches us how to apply what he learned to everyday life, but he also imagines communities built around, not despite, constant arguing and disagreement. Bo says that a political life without constant disagreement would be impoverished. And as he puts it, quote, nations are at their best evolving arguments. Adding that, quote, in a liberal democracy, good arguments are not just what societies should do, but also what they should be. And I love all these statements. I love the idea that on well-curated, well-moderated platforms, ones that value good faith interactions, arguing and disagreement flips from being catalysts for polarization to becoming the very engines of depolarization and of change itself. So I support Bo's thesis, which put simply is that a great democracy isn't a place where everyone agrees and sees eye to eye, but one where we work to have better quality disagreements. And that's why Bo So is our second guest in this, the second episode of a three-part series about how to have difficult conversations with people who see the world differently, how to have better debates about contentious issues, and how to ethically and scientifically persuade one another about things that matter. In short, this is a three-part series about how minds change, which is also the title of my new book. And while promoting How Minds Change, which came out just a few months ago, Lots of people pointed out that several other books had come out at the same time as mine with similar themes. A new wave of nonfiction about how to have better conversations and reduce 
all this argumentative madness and epistemic chaos. So instead of framing all these authors and all these books as being in competition with one another, I really wanted to boost everyone's signal. This is something I really care about, so I thought it would be nice to collaborate instead of compete, since that's part of what we're all proselytizing with these books. I got in touch with the three authors with the three most prominent books on this topic. They all said, yes, for sure, we'd love to be part of this project. So the previous episode, this episode, and the next will feature those authors talking about their books. In the first episode, we sat down with Monica Guzman, the author of I Never Thought of It That Way. In the next, we will spend time with Anand Giardadis, the author of The Persuaders. But in this episode, we're talking to Bo So, who actually sent me an email before I could send him one, which thrilled me because the email was all about how he's been out there promoting his new book about competitive debate, while I've been out there promoting my new book about the psychology behind all this, and readers have been emailing him saying we should meet because our books seemed like they were already in conversation with each other. I have been hearing from people saying pretty much the same thing about his book and him, so we met, recorded an interview, and that is this episode. How are you? This is a huge treat. This is so nice. I'm so happy to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to do it. How are you? Oh yeah, thank you as well. I'm doing great. I love how I loved how you wrote the book, man. It felt like you were not coming at it from the beginning with all the answers. It was like uh, you were bringing people along with it, and I thought that was just really well done and actually a bit unusual. I mean, I, I was trying to go for a similar thing. Um, in some ways. And maybe in my case, it was because it was more biographical. It lent itself to that. But but for you also, I mean, it was it was a, a journey. I had two editors along the way. And every time I would tell stories to them about the book and the process, they were like, why is that not the book? I was like, well, I guess I never thought about it that way. And they really pushed me to, to put an arc in the book, which is, yeah, come along with me. I started this thinking one thing and thought another. I didn't understand this. And then I started to understand it over time. And I've never done anything like that either. And I think I'll probably write in that way more often in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. And I thought reading yours um, just compared with a lot of the, because otherwise it can feel like, well, why are you withholding information? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I'll right? get. We'll get to that. I promise. We'll get to that. I promise. But, yeah. <laughs> Whereas, um, no, I, I think it read much more naturally this week. Well, I really appreciate that feedback. And uh, I would totally expected your book to be bullet point one, bullet point two, bullet point three. And I was like, oh, this is a autobiography. This is uh, you really take the reader through your why this matters to you and why this is your part of your life story. Yeah. And then that, that's that's something you say in the introduction, like. If you want to build a better world through this debate framework, you have to also see that people who learn these techniques and get involved in this world, they become better people and that encourages them to want to proselytize it, which is exactly what the whole book is. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. 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 I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. It feels like we're um, we're working around a lot of the same questions, both in, substantively, but also of how we tell the story. Right, and, and how the books have an impact on the world. Before we get into it, I'd like to take a moment to talk about 
what it is we're getting into. See, Bo is a master of argumentation, a wizard of generating personal opinions and establishing intellectual positions, a maestro of producing wonderful, thought-out, reasonable justifications for his arguments and then defending those opinions as they are systematically evaluated and challenged by other professional debaters. And a lot of that is just learning how to listen, listen really well, really, really, really pay attention to what the other person is saying so that you can respond to what they are saying, not the issue or the person so much as how the person is constructing their arguments. And I find that so absolutely fascinating because I spent a long, long time obsessed with the science of arguing itself while writing my book, How Minds Change. And that's because the concept of arguing and disagreeing and persuading and then coming to some kind of agreement on what is true, what is false, a shared goal or plan, all those things, and by extension, debate as a formal version of all those things, they're the focus of many different lines of scientific inquiry, from anthropology to sociology to psychology to political science to neuroscience. A lot of researchers are interested in understanding why do we argue? How did that phenomenon evolve as a thing that humans do? In a way, it's like asking, how did life first form on planet Earth? Except the question here is, how did arguing first form in the human brain? In Bo's book, he says there is, quote, a physics that underlies our everyday arguments and, in sum, forms a body of knowledge that is more accessible than formal logic and more broadly applicable than negotiation, end quote. And I agree with this a lot. After many interviews with scientists like Hugo Mercier and Tom Stafford and Rob Willer and Avnika Amin and Annie Sternisko, and reading all their research papers, it became clear to me that there is an underlying physics, the one that Boso writes about, and it has its foundations in evolution by natural selection, which gave the human brain a unique propensity to argue, to persuade and deliberate with other rational agents not just to converge on a plan of action or to reach a shared goal, but to correct each other when mistaken, to constantly work to coalesce a worldview, to urge one another to reconsider attitudes and values when it's making the group unhealthy. So we each possess physical, biological features of the brain that give rise to a collection of cognitive mechanisms that, in one category, helps us create and communicate to others arguments for the sake of persuading other human minds. And in another category, we possess a collection of cognitive mechanisms to help us evaluate those same kinds of arguments, to understand persuasive communication received from other brains when those other brains are attempting to change our minds or just argue their case, be that in court, on a battlefield, on a road trip, in a boardroom, or in a living room. That's the nature side of things, which is a huge side. But there's also another side that is just as big. That's the nurture side. This is the one that came along thanks to culture, thanks to the accumulation of cultural ideas and practices and concepts. And we eventually applied our argumentative nature to cultural things like law and politics and academia and science and medicine and formal debate, formal competitive debate, which is what Boso does. And within each of these fields, we developed a set of terms and concepts. Sometimes it's a bit like math. It's a, it's a language for making sense of how we try to shake some sense into each other. And in his book, 
he talks about all those things when he's referring to the physics of debate. And there are zillions of terms. In psychology, there's terms like naive realism and reactance and the elaboration likelihood model, the heuristic systemic model, the interactionist model, trust bottlenecks, epistemic vigilance, and so on. But this is a silo that's separate from the silo of concepts that are in formal logic with its propositions and Aristotelian forms and Boolean connectives and Hegelian dialectics. And then there's the language of negotiation. A good negotiator would know about all the things I just mentioned, but they exist within a separate dynamic that's focused on helping people collaborate and compromise when they feel at odds over a particular outcome. And then you have formal debate, which is its own thing as well. It has its own history going back more than a thousand years, and it has plenty of its own terms. For instance, fact-based arguments would be descriptive. That's what is, what is true, what is real. Whereas attitudinal and value-based arguments, these are normative. What is desirable? What ought to be so? How people ought to behave? What ought to be legal? What ought to be illegal? And then there's the should-based arguments. What should happen? What should you do? What they should do? What the government should do? Those are called prescriptive arguments. Descriptive, normative, prescriptive. And then you have claims and conclusions and topic analysis. It's a whole world of ideas. And Boso thinks everyone should be familiar with them. And that is why he is our guest. He is a two-time world debate champion. He is the former coach of the Australian National Debate Team and the Harvard College Debating Union. He's a superstar in the world of debate who has won both the World Schools Debating Championship and the World Universities Debating Championship. He's already earned one degree from Harvard, but now he's getting another from Harvard Law School. And his new book, Good Arguments, is all about the strategies, structure, and history of competitive debate. And the aim of the book is to help people improve their communication skills and help them transform the bad faith arenas of public discourse that have spread like kudzu across our lands, across our ideascapes, to change those from bad faith arenas to good faith gathering places where we can all get the most out of disagreement. So with that in mind, after this break, let's pick his brain. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? 
How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, You can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. 
That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. talk about your thesis for a second here because i come to you as a person who thought they knew all this stuff i thought i had some understanding of it because of doing a show about biases and heuristics and motivated reasoning and everything but when i jumped into the world that you live in and started to try to understand what is an argument what is a belief what is what are propositions and all these things i was astonished at how one, how little I really understood, and two, how much other people did understand, which and they had so much to show me. And I came to that strange place that you are arguing from in the book that you say that you say like we have to deal with the fact that we're different, we have to coexist, but it's about disagreeing better. And it's which is I think a lot of people approach a book like this and go, Okay, show me how to convince the other person that I'm right and they're wrong. And that's not necessarily the approach. If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the first thing that comes to mind is you're precisely right. That part of what I'm trying to do is to broaden people's view of all the different ways in which disagreements can be good. So there isn't one way of winning an argument, which is most typically we think about it as we've gotten our way or we've changed the other person's mind. And this is something I, I must talk to you about, but learning from the conversation, feeling as though you had been heard, that you've better understood the position of your opponent, set yourself up for a better conversation down the line. All of those things can be wins as well. So part of it is just seeing all that disagreements contain and all the things that they can do for us. So that is a, um, a bit of a starting place for me. And in terms of where I'm coming at it, it's a slightly unusual thing, and you do it really well in your, your book, of going from experience and then going from the world of what is, right? And then trying to find explanations, whether that they be sociological or psychological, to better understand what's going on. And in, and in my life, I started with an answer in some ways, which is debating. And debating is a toolkit that has been sharpened and, and polished and condensed down to the strongest version of itself it can be over generations of debaters working at this craft. It is a community that's built around and not despite disagreement that travels the world that meets regularly for the sake of disagreeing and people all kind of get along, which is an amazing thing. And so I needed both of those things in my life because disagreements were for me a source of pain and alienation. I started debating because I moved from South Korea to Australia and didn't speak the English language and debating was the only place where I was given the silence, right? And the structure so that I might be heard. I needed all of those things. And in some ways, this book was going from the given, which was, I've encountered this world, this set of tools, this community. Now, can I 
try and make sense of it and say, does it have something to teach the rest of the world about how we should disagree? And so that, that was the pathway for me, starting from the world of what is and trying to draw out lessons from there. There's this line from Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture, which I quote from at some point, and this is not the part I quote, but she talks about the Tower of Babel, right? And the punishment that we as humans got for our hubris of reaching for the heavens was our language became fractured. And in the aftermath of that, we can sometimes fantasize about or pine for one language, right? And she says, well, whose language? That's one piece of it. But another for me, just aside from the politics is, where are we at our best, right? And when I think about my life and when I, when I look out um, into the broader world, I don't think we're at our best when we're just with people who agree with us, right? They tend to reaffirm our biases. They tend to egg us on to more and more extreme positions. They make us more contemptuous of people who disagree with us. There's not an intimacy there because it's very arm's length and we're very careful not to bring in anything too controversial or things that might divide us. And all of those things, there's a, there's a tidiness to that, to communities built around agreement, to a life filled with agreeableness. But I want to suggest there's something richer. And when we think about the moments in our lives that have maybe contributed most to our growth or changed our mind the most or um, made us see things a different way or to take a bigger, a, a longer stride than we otherwise might have, I think a lot of that is rooted in, in disagreement. I think one thing that we accept in a democracy is, and we should accept in a democracy, is our side is not always going to prevail. Right. So there, you know, our party is going to win sometimes, it's going to lose sometimes. And when you accept that, the focus shifts in part to one, the commitment to keep competing with each other, but also to talk with each other. And when you accept there are going to be wins and losses, you start thinking about the rules by which we're playing the game. Right. So sometimes I might win, sometimes I might lose, but are we playing by a set of rules and are we sticking by a set of values that we can be comfortable with? That's something that um, debating has given me a glimpse of into too, because when we're disagreeing, one of the things we want to get into our minds is that are we disagreeing in such a way that allows us to keep the conversation going, that we're comfortable with continuing to engage on these terms? One thing I share, and the same thing happens in my book too, is that I was unaware, I think on some level, that there's arguing and then there's arguing. I should have picked it up from that old Monty Python sketch where they goes in to have an argument. I don't know how popular that is in debate world, but it feels like it would be. I can't. An argument is a collective series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Arguments are an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic game saying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. The whole sketch is about the difference between a bickering match versus yes. a substantial argument in which we were going to both try to 
Venn diagram our views of the world in some way and come out of it knowing a little bit more about how to see this thing and texturing, as you were saying. Mm. I really had found that there was like a strange language barrier there. Like I didn't have the articulation for the difference between an argument where I'm just trying to defeat you and win and get my way versus one where, okay, what do you suggest? What do I suggest? Oh, well, I didn't know that. Then we go shoulder to shoulder and marvel at why we might disagree about something but it's not the same disagreement that we had before. It matures and evolves within the conversation space. Uh, can I say something about that, David? I mean, I love, I love those reflections. And maybe one way um, in which I think about it is there are different languages of disagreement. And you introduce readers to a very important one, which I hadn't thought very much about, which is interviewing, right? And canvassing. And the thing I loved about that is it's an invitation to the other side to remain in conversation. There's no mic drop moments when it's canvassing or interviewing. And in the same way, actually, in debating too, there aren't mic drop moments because you have to take turns. So I get a go, you get a go, but I'm going to respond. So I'm not going to interrupt you in the middle of it, and I'm not going to walk away after my contribution has gotten the requisite number of retweets or likes, right? Because it's an invitation to continue. I mean, the humor of that, that Monty Python sketch is that this person is bickering and it doesn't end. So this bickering thing can be one language of disagreement that can be kind of funny and, and we do it with our loved ones. There can even be something playful about that and romantic about that, friendly about that. But it has to end and you have to find a different language of disagreeing at some point. And that could be negotiating, it could be canvassing, it could be debating. But I think it's in all of our interest to learn these different languages of disagreement. And the first step is to recognize it is a language. Arguing isn't just the sound of our conflict or, or the sound of us not getting along. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think it's in all of our interests to try and map out some of that language, but also as readers and as people trying to learn them, recognize the limits of each language too. The way in which I think it can form a part of the toolkit of persuasion is knowing when that mode has stopped serving its use. I, I think that doesn't take away from the usefulness of it. it. It makes our understanding of its uses more precise. I want to talk about some principles of debate that you talk about in the book. One of the greatest things is right up front, because you saw it applied in your own life right off the bat, as so many of us have a dad that we were going to argue with a lot as kids. <laughs> you talk about the wonderful Mrs. Tillman and giving you this debate about that we should have compulsory military service. And of course, in, when you're in debate, when you're in professional debate world, in, even learning it in school, you somebody gets the affirmative, somebody gets the other side, and you have to, you don't know which one you're going to get. So you have to become good at debating all both sides of the issue. But you got from Mrs. Tillman, this question of what exactly is this argument about? Yeah. And I like that step back moment where 
uh, you, you engage in topic analysis so that you can figure out, are we even having the same discussion here? Are we, are we, are we actually talking about the issue with each other? Or are we just assuming that we're talking about it because you have your side and I have my side? What an important thing that you have to have up front. And then you applied this with your father. I'll sit back. Tell us more about that. Sure. One of the lessons that I go through very early in the book is that every disagreement should start with some agreement. And we've talked a bit about agreement about how we're going to have the conversation. So in debating, we're not going to talk over each other. We're going to take turns. But it's also about what we're disagreeing about. And even within what seems like a fairly straightforward disagreement, there may be lots of disagreements within that, right? So if we're arguing about whether to send the kids to the local public school, we might be having that disagreement just about what we do with the kids contains factual disagreements about what we believe the local school is like, what the kids are like. It contains normative disagreements about what we think our obligations to the public school system is. And then it has that prescriptive disagreement about what we actually do about it, right? And all of those things could be hiding beneath the cover of what seems like a straightforward disagreement about the children's education. So there's real power in, as you say, stepping back and saying, what is this really about? And in that moment, you and your opponents are almost on the same team because it's in both of your interests to be able to figure out what we're disagreeing about. And the flip side of that, of saying, what is it that we're disagreeing about is what are we not disagreeing about? Um, and I think this is especially important in our personal lives where you know a disagreement about dirty dishes becomes also about how you treated me last week and, uh, so, and, you know, and what your in-laws did and so on and so on. And saying, this is what we're disagreeing about, says all of those things are off the table. And more seriously, that this disagreement is not about whether we love each other. Um, it's not about whether we're going to stay together. It's not about whether we care about each other. That clarity helped a lot. And in my disagreements with my father, you know, someone, one of the people I love most, my dad's Korean, so he served in the military and um, sort of a, a laconic guy. And it, it, it became important for us to name exactly what the disagreement is so that we did not read into it something more than that it did not become all consuming, you know, and, and it actually reminds me of, uh, I think it's a story you tell David about, I think it was you saying to, to a relative, you don't want them to be misled. Do you remember, do you remember that? Yeah. You're talking about my argument with my father. So, and, and my father is also a military man. And I, I have a friend who's Misha Gloverman. He's a conflict negotiation facilitator. And he kept telling me, why do you want to have the argument? And I was told him, well, I want, I don't want him to believe things that are not true. And he's like, yeah, but why, why don't you want to do that? Why do you, why do you not want him to believe things that are not true? I was like, well, I'm, um, I don't want to be misled and all these things. And he chained me down to the point where, you know, he's Socratic maybe all the way down to, well, it's because I love him and I don't want him to be, to think of me as a them 
and him and his and us or me the other way. He's like, well, that's what you're actually out for. That's what you want from this. And you should tell him that first. And then when I opened up the conversation with, I love you and I don't yes. want us to be, I don't want this, com- I don't want this debate that we're having. I don't want this disagreement we're having to jeopardize that. That changed everything. That took that off the table, but in some ways it also made it the point of the discussion was how do we work on this together so that we stay in a relationship that we care about. And then now I'm, we're just like looking at the issue. Why do we disagree about it? And yes, part of that was, I'm worried you're being misled. And he's like, well, I don't want to be misled either. Now we have a shared goal. It really reframed things. I love that. I mean, the underlying reasons why we disagree, especially with people we love, are actually for quite moving reasons. We care about how we disagree with each other because I want this to be a long-term relationship. I want to spend my life with this person. Bringing out the reason why we disagree and the reason why we even think that disagreement is worthwhile, why it hurts so bad when it goes wrong, I think can be useful. And just the way you did that in your family relationship, we can do that for our political life too. Do you have any tips about when I'm in the middle of something with someone? Like I'm not talking about the academic collegiate debate. I'm talking about just the sort of thing you're going to experience in your everyday life whether it's on the internet or the family member or whatever, or in a relationship, what are your tips and or advice when it comes to sorting out the descriptive, normative, and prescriptive elements of what's going on between you and the other person? The best advice I can give is to not be afraid to leave the disagreement temporarily in the, and to stop, to pause the disagreement and to check that you're still talking to each other and not across each other. And the way in which we do that is you could say, just to check, are we still arguing about this, right? Or is this what really matters to you, right? If if we could agree on the facts, would the rest of our disagreement go away, right? Or would there still be some normative discussion that we have to have because that's more core. And I think that's a a useful thing and a useful tactic that we have as debaters, as disagreeers. But it's a good thing for us to do as human beings because it reminds the other side, there's more to you as a person than the person who's disagreeing with the other side, right? So disagreeing is one of the things I'm doing, but I'm also in conversation with you. I'm also trying to find out information. I'm still trying to figure things out as I go. And so not being afraid to pause the discussion and to check to if every disagreement should start with some agreement to go back to those conditions of agreement when you feel like those are slipping, I think that can be a useful thing. So continuing to name what the disagreement is about checking with the other side that your understanding is mutual on that. That's where I'd start. For people who feel very conflict averse who are listening and the idea of debate just makes their stomach like crumple up and they're like, no, how could I, I dig all this. Thank you so much. I know we should have proper conversations, but I'm thinking about this person who I'm having issues with and I'm 
the idea of getting into this is bothering me. Any insights into the rebuttal process itself when I'm worried that it's going to come across as what I'm attempting to do is punch you with words. But at the same time, I need to rebut these things that are taking place. I need to assert myself in some way. When you think of a debater, you're usually thinking about the person in the front of the room. In fact, almost all the time in a debate, you're not speaking. Um, you're listening to what the other side is saying. And it's very much in your interests to get that right, because otherwise your point is not connecting with what they actually said. And in a debating context, there's a, a judge. So there's someone, an, Im, an impartial person, judging whether you've given them a fair hearing. And I think the way in which that transfers is, you know, when we're arguing with someone and trying to get them to change their mind, we're usually very clear on the destination. But there has to be a starting place as well. So you have to know where it is they're coming from. Keeping in mind both sides of the journey, I think, can be important. And, you know, Dave, I think it's telling that one of the central examples in your book is um, the LGBT community. And in my experience, the best debaters tend to be slightly marginal figures, right? And that could be race or sexuality, but it could just be a personality type. They're kind of wallflowers and so on. And, and I always wondered why that was, but I think one reason for that is because those people on the margins, on the periphery, they know how to listen. And they're used to reading a room before they make their contribution, right? And there are real questions about how much weight we place on you know, disenfranchised groups to, to have to do that work of, of listening and persuading and making their case often for their rights. But it is, in my experience, one extraordinary strength that comes from that experience of being on the margins. Um, and that's the power to, li to listen, right? And I think that is the, the, the first step in, in thinking about push in, in pushing back, right? It's almost something that you earn by giving the other side a fair hearing. Once you've done that, it helps to know what it is that you're disagreeing with. And very often when we're in a disagreement with someone whose positions are antithetical to our own, we just get a kind of a queasy or upset feeling that they're wrong, <laughs> but, 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 um, but, um, and, and sometimes we're not even more sophisticated than that, right? We're just like, you're so, this is crazy. Yeah. It's the recipe of the old George Carlin thing where he's like, you ever, you ever listen to somebody for long enough? And you're like, uh, uh, yep, there it is. They're full of shit. Like, that, <laughs> like, like you just, like you listen. He's like he he made the case. Be a good listener because you'll be like, oh, oh, there it is. You were. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. But um, <laughs> so you know, we it feels very amorphous and and inchoate. This feeling of frustration, and you know, they're wrong, and I can't even can't barely get my words out. And so one of the things that I think debating teaches you to do is to, in the same way we've named what our argument is about, you name your objection. So it starts with the insight that every argument has to do 
at least two things in order for it to work. And that's to show that it's true and that it's important. So if I'm arguing that we should plant X number of trees because it'll be good for the environment, you have to first show that it will in fact be good for the environment. Otherwise, what's the point? And you have to show that the fact that it's good for the environment means we should plant X number of trees as opposed to the costs of the exercise or you know what the grounds are being used for currently why is the environmental concern the thing that should win out on this end and so when you think about responding to that argument planting proposal your objection might be you actually don't think it'll be that good for the environment in this instance or it could be that you think there are other considerations that are more important or um, that should outweigh and so Already, and we've just just gotten into the beginning of it, what started as just a kind of a sense you're wrong or I disagree with you, it has a little bit more structure, it has a bit more shape, um, and being able to give name to what it is that you're agreeing with stops you from overstating your case, from taking off the table parts of the other person's perspective that might be reasonable, that you could learn from, that could be the basis of some collaboration or some, some, t- some place that something you could run with. And I think that that's where I would start in terms of pushing back. Plant, the planting these trees would be good for the environment. So what are we actually arguing about? What do you mean by good? What do you mean by environment? What do you mean by plant? Like, like this these things that may seem obvious are worth investigating before we even proceed forward. There may be many pockets of agreement here. There also may be ideas that neither one of us really understand well. And so how could we even think that we could be representatives of either side of an issue that neither one of us understands deeply? The You talk about the, an argument could be untrue, unimportant, or outweighed. You're just using this uh, example to show that. Maybe it won't help... Uh, Maybe it will help, but it doesn't mean that that's a good thing. And like, if we're talking about good for the environment, helping in one way may not be good in the other. Uh, it can make it worse. If I'm asking you to join me in figuring those things out, that's a different kind of discussion than if I'm you say you say this is this is a thing, and I disagree. Or I say this is a thing. It's so, and also uh, this is something I love about this. Like I learned this when I was researching my book about Rappaport's rules. You were saying in your in the book in this section, make their case better than them. Good speakers uh, will gloat about their opponent's mistakes. Great debaters rush in to repair them. That is fantastic. Please tell me a little bit more about this concept. Yeah. One of the big mistakes we make is we have this sense if they talk more or if they are allowed to make their argument in full, that we would be in a weaker position. And I think often that is not true. And the reason is when you interrupt someone, the first thing is the likelihood of changing their mind, I think, reduces drastically um, because they don't feel like they've been given a hearing. But more than that, you're arguing against either like the ideal version of the other person's argument, whereas it's unlikely they would have stumbled on that best version. You give them an opportunity to, to pivot right, and make a different argument. And, you know, one of the things, one of the chapters in the book is about, it's kind of like defense against the dark arts of arguing against bullies. <laughs> the Schopenhauer dark arts. Yeah. 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 
And one of the things that bullies do is um, they say no to everything, right? Without putting forward a proposal of their own. And the strength of that position is they can continually move the goalposts, right? And so asking, well, what do you propose? What do you believe? Why do you believe that? And forcing them to fully flesh out that argument before you start responding can be a source of real strength. Kind of like the, I think it's a theme we've been circling around all conversation, but strength in disagreement doesn't look like what we might assume it might look like. It doesn't look like domineering performances of interrupting and speaking over the other person. It can take the form of questions. It can take the form of listening. It can take the form of circumspection, right? And precision about what you're disagreeing about and what you're not disagreeing about, what you're objecting to, what you're not objecting to, what you're actually agreeing with. It's in some ways that gap between the perception of debating and what I think is its reality, it's in that gap that I think a lot of the truths or, or what I believe to be truths, it's, it's where they come from. I, I had almost have did an episode about the art of always being right. So when Schopenhauer pops up, the, the, he was uh, one of the weirdest looking philosophers and uh, takes a great photo. And he wrote this cheeky thing about how to avoid actually talking about anything. Let's take a moment here. You should just know who this is. Author Schopenhauer. This is an author Schopenhauer moment. He's a German philosopher who wrote a satirical essay in 1831. And the title more or less translates to The Art of Being Right, 38 Ways to Win an Argument. And in the essay, he lays out 38 ways to use the dark arts to, instead of using logic and reason, and good faith proper debate techniques. He outlines how to use tricks, dodges, and chicanery. That's the actual quote, tricks, dodges, and chicanery. So ad hominem, false premises, constant interruptions, stuff that's just designed to make your opponent angry. I'll do an episode about this one day, probably a series of episodes, but for now, back to the show. It's definitely satire. It's obviously he's playing a character. But you use this in a, in, in a chapter in the book to talk about, well, how do I deal with bad faith actors and bullies and, and, and you know, just assholes, people who don't, who, who have probably through a lot of trial and error have figured out ways to, to bully people to give up the argument whenever they start disagreeing with people and you describe them and you have tips for them. I, this is a part of the book. I do want people to get as a takeaway for this episode. We'll go through it, do it as a lightning round. If you're okay with it, I'm going to do these four different kinds of bullies you're going to face. Let's start with the first one, the Dodger. What does this person do and what do we do about it? You know, these are obviously strategies people use and the way that Schopenhauer kind of looked at these dozens of moves that people make. In, in a bad disagreement, I tried to kind of embody them. And the first type is the dodger, who instead of responding to the substance of the argument, pivots to something else, right? And that's often an ad, ad hominem attack. So you say, 
we should have a carbon tax because it'll be good for the environment. And they say something like, yeah, but you drive a Hummer, right? Which has nothing to do with the carbon tax. It has to do with you, right? And so the thing to do with a Dodger is to stay the course and not to allow them to change the topic and to bring it back to the substance of the argument that you're making. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Al Gore is giving these lectures about saving the environment, but he's getting an airplane, to, his private airplane to fly back and forth. I never heard him say anything in response to that. If you were his advisor, what would you say? If, uh, tell him, this is what you should say when people say that to you. Go back to establishing the agreement that we talked about, right? So we're having a conversation now about the carbon tax, and my travels is irrelevant to that. We can talk separately about my travel history if that's what's relevant to you, but that'll be a different discussion. We're gonna, you're going to engage with this argument first because that's the conversation we're having. The twister. This is someone who uh, often will slip into the straw man. Yeah, so this is a person who will essentially misrepresent your argument. Let's say you're for slightly higher corporate taxes. The person will say, does this mean you don't believe in the institution of private property at all, right? And the appropriate response is to correct the record and explain what it is that you do believe and to ask them to engage with your argument rather than their projection. This political candidate that I like very much is being investigated and you're like, well, you know, no one's above the law. I'm like, oh, well, so you're saying that you're okay with going into a police state. That's what you want, a police state. What would you, how would you respond to that? You're saying, no, in this particular instance, for these particular reasons, I believe this investigation is justified. And again, it's a, a thing of trying not to do everything in one go, right? So you can have a, a broader discussion about you know, if it's about the police state, it's about how big the government should be, what its influence um, in our lives should be. But it's a mistake to, in the middle of this discussion about one investigation, to pivot to that, because it's very unlikely you're going to make a whole lot of progress. So it's about saying, we can have that discussion, but let's resolve this question first, because this is what I believe, and you've misrepresented that, or you've twisted that. The Wrangler this is someone who likes to move the goalposts, Laura. Yeah. So this is the person um, who disagrees with everything you say and for whom nothing is ever good enough, right? So you're trying to go on holidays and you say, how about Hawaii? How about South Carolina? How about um, London? And for each one, they can come up with 15 reasons why it's a terrible idea. And to that person, the response is, well, what do you propose, right? Because we're going on holidays somewhere or we're staying at home. And as soon as you fix them to a position, right, whether it be some other destination or just remaining on the couch, then it becomes more of a comparison as opposed to you providing all the answers and them being able to object to it. Okay, and the final one, and this is probably one that it like feels like there's nothing you can do, but you have advice here the liar. What do we do with the person who just simply is okay with lying in during the debate? It's a very difficult personality and, and it's becoming increasingly a feature of our public conversations, right? And there is probably a, a, a broader response that we need to thinking about what role truth and lies play in our conversation. But to 
tips that I think could be useful in in day-to-day life, especially, is first, liars tend to lie in great quantity so as to overwhelm the other side. And it's a mistake to try and respond to all of the lies. So the first step is to choose a representative lie um, and say, look, I'm not going to be able to respond to all of your claims uh, without giving up all of my time um, and not being able to advance a position of my own. So I'm going to show how this lie is representative of the misrepresentation you're engaging in. And second, rather than just calling it a lie, trying to demonstrate why it might be so. So plug it into the real world, right? So let's assume that lie is true, right? Then why aren't we seeing something else? Or why are we seeing this other thing that's contradictory to what you're assuming? So plug in the lie and show some of the problems that might arise, and then instead supply the truth, right? So say, actually, it's this other thing. And if you plug it into the real world and the way in which things are unfolding, you'll see things make more sense. So pick the representative lie, and I call it plug and replace in the book. I have a surprise one for you. If you could tell people what is the Gish Gallup, and then what do you do about this? I see really, I have seen so many smart, capable science communicators attempt to have some sort of good faith discussion with science deniers, and they just can't deal with the Gish Gallup. They have no ability to, they don't know what to do. They haven't been trained. They haven't been prepared in this way, and it's an, they get railroaded by it. What, what do you suggest here? Yeah. So the Gish Gallup is um, a technique, I suppose, for overwhelming the other side with a quant- a great quantity of lies or um, semi-truths, right? That either disorients the other side or sucks them into the trap of responding to all of these arguments without being able to advance a position of their own. So I think the first thing is, and this is general advice, I think, for debating bad faith actors like this is, the first is there's real power in being able to name that's what's happening, right? So the term gish gallop is empowering for those who know it because they're able to say, this is what this person is doing. And maybe explaining why we might not want to have our conversations in this way, where the purpose is not to connect or to verify or to check or to stress test our ideas, but instead just to dominate the other side in this way. So I think the first is being able to name it is important. And the second is then it's again about pausing the disagreement and getting the other side or trying to persuade the other side to get to that position of agreement about how we're going to have the discussion. So you could say, I'm not interested in a discussion where you make 50 points without giving me a chance to respond, right? Or you interrupt me to be able to make all of these points. So you want to say, this is the kind of discussion I want to have, right? Which is you make an argument, I get a chance to respond, right? Or you get an argument, I get a chance to respond, and you have to respond to what what I've just said, right? So being clear about the kind of conversation you want to have and trying to get some agreement about that, explaining to them why that might be the better way to have this conversation, I think can be helpful. Um, And then on the Gish Gallup in particular, I think a lot of the advice with liars, picking the representative lie and working through one of them rather than many of them, um, that can be helpful. Okay, people, listen, read your Schopenhauer 
and then get good arguments. This is a this is if you want to have this inoculation that we just uh, told you is possible, you get it with this book. I want you to know that routinely throughout the book and in many sections, there are lots of charts that say, do this, here's why, and with examples. And if you ever wanted to understand debate from the inside, this is what you want, what you want to get. If people want to keep up with you, how do you do that? What's the best way? The website is helloboso.com, helloboseo.com. And I'm on um, various social channels as well. <laughs> yeah. And I also exist as a modern person that has social media. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. I love the idea of us uh, just getting together and chatting about these things we care about a great deal. And thank you for being who you are, and what you do in this world, and all the people that you're going to influence going forward. Thank you so much for that as well. Really appreciate your time. David, it was a huge, huge treat. And I, I wrote to you because I, 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 I came across the book and we both had the experience of people saying, oh, we have to read the other person's book. And it felt like we were getting at many of the same questions for similar reasons too. Um, so it's it's brilliant to have you on the team um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. to be on the team. And, and, uh, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. This was really a joy. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to youarenotsosmart.com. There's a link in the show notes inside your podcast player. You'll also find a link to my book, How Minds Change. You'll find a link to my newsletter, which is Disambiguation. It's a Substack, And you'll find links to all the different places you can find past episodes, including youarenotsosmart.com. But Stitcher and SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music and Audible and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get things like signed books and posters and t-shirts and all sorts of cool things. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Bo So's website is helloboseo.com, where you can find his book, Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard. Another episode in this series in about two weeks. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.